Well, no question that we, uh, the world needs a savior, right? And uh, we join back into the story here then with God's story. The Apostle Paul, the good news, Jesus has indeed come. So we're looking today at uh, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34 of Acts. Acts 17, 16 through 34. Uh, There on the Rack Bibles, the Black Bibles, you'll find that on page 926. So let's rejoin Paul now. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's... Uh, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man to every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some even of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when he heard of when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. A few years ago, I had a friend from Wisconsin coming out to visit, and he loves fishing, big surprise. 
And so I said I'd take him fishing. And I grew up on a little river outside of Skykomish. Not, not actually grew up there, but we had a cabin and property up there, so it felt like growing up, very special place. And I grew up fly fishing, and uh, every once in a while you'd get a bite, and you'd, if you could catch a 14-inch rainbow trout, you were thrilled. Well, that wasn't quite the fishing that my friend had in mind. And if you know anything about Wisconsin, it's uh, a little different out there. So I thought I'd give him a full experience, and we hired uh, our friend Blaine Parks. Many of you know the Parks family, and he was our guy down on the Cowlitz River and had never done that kind of fishing. We were, it was May, end of May, and we were going for the spring run of Chinook. And uh, here's what I remember. Uh, it was unseasonably cold for May. It rained over an inch the night before. And uh, that didn't help. The waters were pretty muddy. We woke up at 3.30 to be on the river before dawn. We froze our tail fins off. I got a fish hook stuck in my thumb. We caught nothing. We didn't even get a bite. And here's my conclusion. I like the idea of fishing. I'm not committed to it. Catching something would have been nice. I'm sure that would have helped. I'm not convinced, though, it's worth the effort. And I'm certainly not going to rearrange my life for it. And for many of us, that's how we feel about evangelism. We like the idea of it. We're not all that committed to it. Seeing people find new life in Jesus would be nice, but we're not really sure if it's worth the effort. And it's certainly not something we're going to rearrange our life for. Paul was on vacation, and he couldn't stop preaching the gospel. Now, that's reading between the lines a little bit. It is an assumption. Uh, But it seems that Paul was sent for rest, right? We know some of the, the difficulties and persecution they have been under, and they're kind of moving from town to town and it seems that he's sent, I mean, he's sent alone to a new city, which wasn't what they had been doing. So I, I can read in, and other commentators have too, that his good friends were looking at him going, man, you're, you, you, need, you need to rest. You need to get away. So go down to Athens. You've never been to Athens. And for you, that would be perfect. Walk the streets. I mean, the, the storied historical city of Athens. Get some rest. We'll, vi- we'll meet you there, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. So reading between the lines, I, I got to assume at least it was probably not vacation, but it was rest. And yet Paul is restless as he gets into this city. Uh, Eugene Peterson put it this way in the message, his paraphrase of Scripture The longer that Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy to join him, the angrier he got. All of those idols. The city was a junkyard of idols. I felt like I had to read something from the message this morning. I don't do that all that often, but Eugene Peterson passed from this life to the next this week, and he finished strong. You know, some of his his final words as he was on his bed with his family there as he gazed up to heaven were, let's go. So well done, Eugene. And uh, the message has blessed millions, and the only reason probably I don't read from it is uh, there's probably a confusion around it. It's written so well, it's not actually a translation of the original languages. It's an illustration. It's a commentary, and it brings it to life, and it's been loved by so many. It's blessed so many millions. And uh, 
would encourage you, if you haven't, I mean, alongside your other Bible study, uh, to, to enjoy the, the message that he wrote and spent years and years of his life developing. What an offering uh, that who knows how long it will remain, but it does remain and leave a legacy. So, well done, Eugene. And for, for statements like that or phrases like that, a junkyard of idols that make you pause or think differently about what was happening in the Scriptures at that time, You know, history shows us that as a city, Athens was on the decline at this point, that it had already reached its peak of prominence a couple centuries earlier. Uh, Those that lived in the city at that day wouldn't have agreed. Uh, They still would have considered themselves uh, the stuff. And likely, I mean, Athens was probably still considered the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire even in that day. They had this storied history of culture and influence uh, that's been called, the city's been called the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, music, ethics, theater, uh, Western medicine, kind of all trace its roots to some of uh, prominent minds and thinkers. Certainly, its influence on on philosophy uh, is significant. The architecture was magnificent. You know, the Parthenon Temple that sits on the Acropolis is still a uh, primary destination uh, for even today. Uh, the people are in awe of the architecture and knowing it was over, you know, 2,300 years old. Paul saw through the veneer of the city. See, no, no one would have called the city a junkyard by any means, not in that day. But Paul saw through this veneer to the heart of the matter. There was much spirituality in the city, but no spirit. And so immediately he went to the synagogue to reason with his brothers and sisters, the Jewish people that were in that city. That was kind of his custom. And then he went into the Agora, the open-air marketplace, kind of the life center of any ancient city, really. And this one was no different. Then he went to the Areopagus. It was was and is a prominent rock outcropping at the highest point of the city, uh, it's called the Ares Rock, literally translated Ares Rock. Ares, the Greek god of war, uh, because of the Roman influence in that day and the Roman, Roman Empire, uh, obviously in its prominence. The counterpart of the Greek god of war, Ares, is Mars. And so that hill was also known, that, that outcropping, as Mars Hill. So Paul, through, though intending to rest, I believe, needed, needing rest certainly, is restless, and he's relentless in his proclaiming of the gospel. Have you ever had, maybe think of a, a couple friends of mine, but have you ever had this friend where you go out to a restaurant with them, and instead of catching up, they're constantly engaging the, wait, the waiter or waitress, the staff, the staff of the restaurant, uh, building relationship primarily to hopefully share about Jesus. It's annoying (laughs) and somewhat convicting. And so I give you Paul. And are we supposed to be like that? Is this a message about preaching and evangelizing? Kind of. Hang with me. This passage in Acts 17 has been called the centerpiece of the entire book of Acts. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it is significant Uh, Paul's short time in Athens is one of the most insightful commentaries to our current culture that exists in the New Testament. I do believe that. 
And there's a reason that a local church around here named itself Mars Hill, not just for the powerful sermon that Paul preached on that spot, but because of the striking similarities that we can find between our two cities. We often try to do this work, right, to bring the Scriptures alive and present, to bring the truth forward to our current day. And we should learn from Paul, and we should be convicted by his heart, and uh, probably a bit annoyed. And we do well to preach more like Paul, but more importantly is to feel more like Paul. In order to feel more like Paul, we need to see more like Paul. So hang in there if your heart's not quite in it. You know, it's kind of like packing up the fishing boat the night before and checking all the gear when you're not really sure you want to get on the boat. Your head's in it, but not your heart. So hang in. Uh, geographically and chronologically, Seattle and Athens are about as far apart as you can get. And there's probably other words that end with A-L-L-Y that we could say we're very different in. But what about the similarities culturally, spiritually, philosophically? We might be closer than at first we would think. As it was Paul's custom to move to the Jews and then into the Agora, the marketplace, really what he was doing was going where the people were, just like the fishing guide knows where the fish usually gather but is also willing to look at the circumstances of the day. And we had to do that that day when uh, a dam had released and muddied the whole water. Everything was different that day, and so we went to different spots. And our guide was somewhat flummoxed and frustrated that day that we couldn't find where the fish were gathered. And it's easy to look back now and think Paul would have been the same way, uh, looking to change tactics if necessary to find out which lures work that day, which hooks are going to get bites, and sometimes you fish all day and get nothing. And that seems to be Paul. I wonder if he was even, um, as he was engaging these philosophers, if he was even employing the Socratic method, right? Athens, the history of, of Athens, philosophically, the famous names, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the Socratic method could be defined like this, cooperative, argumentative dialogue or debate, where you would ask and answer questions, trying to stimulate new ideas and new thought. That was the Socratic way, uh, and it was prominent in uh, Athens and throughout Greece, and uh, certainly Paul would have sat down with these philosophers and engaged in that kind of dialogue, and probably trying to learn more about their philosophies. We don't know if he knew much of any of their philosophies, these Epicureans, these Stoics, and so asking and answering questions. Uh, in fact, the term that was used not as flattery to Paul, but this babbler. Did you catch that? This babbler. That, that, that word is literally a bird picker. A bird picker. Okay, so it had this picture of a, of a hen picking grain out in the yard, kind of randomly without purpose. And that's what they are accusing Paul of doing. You're just randomly speaking of things that make no sense. So not flattery. We could probably just stick with the fishing analogy, but I thought that was interesting as he worked at trying to find traction with these people and probably also for his own enlightenment of their, their beliefs. And he, he's pretty sharp. He gets it pretty quick and, uh, and then preaches this powerful message, which we will leave to next week uh, because it's worth that at least. 
But these Epicureans, just a couple words, I had to do a little more study personally, so I'll pass it on to you, uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. The Epicureans, uh, we, we're, we're, we're materialists. If we do use that term today, I guess it's usually related to food and drink and kind of um, just luxurious eating or dining. And uh, they were materialists, pleasure seekers. The, the highest form of spirituality for the Epicure, Epicureans was experience, uh, existentialists. Like if there was truth, that, the only truth really could be experienced, and that then reinforced what truth and reality was for them. If there was a, a, a spiritual realm, it was very disconnected from this life. And so live life to the full was kind of their motto. The Stoics were almost the polar opposites. They didn't trust their feelings and their emotions. They trusted their mind and reason and logic. And for them, virtues and values were serving others and helping and being generous and giving, them, giving themselves away ultimately and uh, probably oversimplifications. But think of it this way. Uh, Epicureans would preach enjoy life and Stoics would preach endure life, recognizing it is hard and it's just the reality. Um, and yet both philosophies, both groups are ultimately looking for the same thing, trying to find meaning and purpose and reason for life. They're asking questions about how to be, how to be fulfilled. Why does it even matter? Is there anything beyond this? How do we reach some form of peace or enlightenment? And they're, so they're pursuing the same things. And if God is, if there is a God or gods, they're not necessarily knowable or relational. You only live once, I guess, would probably be both of their mantras. You know, in Athens, I think it's interesting that Luke calls out they were enthralled with the new, the new, uh, new ideas or philosophies or perspectives. And so just with those kind of summary statements, can't we see the parallels between our two cultures as, as far removed as they are in some ways, they're so similar in others. Um, we might not use the same titles, right? We hate labels, right? As a, we hate labels, and that's a label, so own it. This, this, this broad thought, there may, there, there may well be a spiritual realm. Right? Our culture kind of speaks to that, but, but to, to what degree we can know it, debatable. We could even argue over it, but it's probably not even worth the time. If there is some form of afterlife, we won't be conscious of it, probably, uh, or we'll all end up in the same place anyway. So live life to the fullest now, whatever, whatever works, whatever gets you there, whatever path. Um, and do not we, don't we like the new? I mean, we're enthralled with news. And if it happened, if it happened yesterday in our culture, it's really history. Forget about it. We want to be in the know uh, we live with FOMO. We want to be the first to know, and we want to share it with the world. Right? We want to proclaim it. We want to know what, what is happening today, right now. What, what, did, what did Trump say today? Not yesterday's news. So similarly um, to the Athenians, we need new life, not new ideas. But we're enthralled by them. Certainly many today live like the Epicureans for their own pleasure and their own pursuits above all else. Whatever you can get and experience in life, take it. Seize it. It's all you got. Others live more like the Stoics. They believe that their fulfillment is found in giving themselves away and helping and serving others and doing good and being generous. Ironically, they're both self-centered. They're, they're answering the question, 
our culture is answering that question of what does it take to be fulfilled, to find satisfaction, to find meaning and purpose and ultimate life. Paul knew that everyone who lived in Athens was asking that question or forms of that question, and they were answering it in different ways. So nothing's really changed. And as he was actively looking for ways to find traction for hooks that would be bitten onto, the right lures, uh, we should too in our culture. And next week, like I said, we'll look more at this sermon that he preached, the words that he used, but we first want to see the way that he saw and understand the way that he felt. That's our right conviction and the place to begin. Here's a teaser. I mean, just such a powerful sermon. Verse 22, standing up, he cries out, men of Athens. Remember, he's been meeting with them, gaining information, dialoguing back and forth. Maybe it wasn't all that coherent. And he brings it together now in this powerful sermon. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. We'll get into this more next week, but the very thing we must do to find that hook into our culture and our context. I see this in you. I see, I perceive. And then to find a a way to bridge what you're looking for. I see that you are looking for, for something. Let me tell you what I have found. You know, if we don't preach like Paul, it's probably because we don't first see like he saw. And I don't know that, it's, that we're distracted as much as we are overly focused. We are overly, overly narrow-minded in our pursuit. We're not intentional about studying our culture and its values and its philosophies. In fact, we might spend more effort being removed from them, protecting ourselves from them, or, it's, or like events of yesterday, it's just much easier to be numbed by it and to let it pass, than to engage in it and to ask these hard questions. But people are asking the same questions that they always have. They're answering them in just as many different ways as they always have. And so we're not all that different. A lot has changed, and at the same time, almost nothing. And one of the most powerful encounters that Jesus had in the Gospel of John, and this line, John 4:35, has really stuck out to me since I preached through this Gospel. Where Jesus is talking with his disciples after meeting with the Samaritan woman and ministering to her. He then turns his attention to the disciples, and he says this line. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The finishing of that phrase is, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And there's been much debate about what he meant and was it actually harvest time and were the fields white, the tops of the heads of the grain or were, you know, I think uh, the Samaritans often wore white and so they must have been coming kind of over the hill and so when he said, look, the fields are white, then white was coming towards them and I think it has very little to do with that. I think it has to do with a perspective. I think Jesus is saying, you don't yet see the way you need to see. Lift up your eyes. Now, I guess we could be navel-gazing and self-focused and self-centered, and maybe the disciples were, we could also be just not wanting to engage the world. Just, just 
head down, eyes down. I don't want to engage. It's too hard. It's too painful. It's too difficult. And perhaps we are only looking at the physical, what's right before us in our day-to-day, and we aren't looking with the eyes of the Spirit to see what is actually happening at a deeper heart level of individuals and of society. And Jesus calls us to that same thing. Lift up your eyes and see. It's the way Paul was ministering wherever he went, but it's so on display here in Athens. As he goes to the city and perceives and sees what is actually happening, way past the physical idolatry in the city, he sees to the heart of people. And we don't preach like Paul because we don't see like Paul. We don't see like Paul because we don't feel like Paul. What does it take to have our spirit provoked within us? Paul is agitated. He is provoked. He's, in fact, angry at what he sees. Does what we see in our world make us restless? It might be called a holy discontent. Righteous anger. Not all anger is bad. God's anger, as it's described throughout the Old Testament, is often, it is kindled. It is slow, it's a slow burn. That doesn't describe my anger, and probably not yours either. But a slow burn, if there's a holy discontent, can be righteous. What we then do with that is very important. In your anger, do not sin, which most of us are prone to do. And so we say, avoid anger altogether. Just just grin and deal. What do we see in our world that provokes us? Injustice? Abuse? Discrimination? Suffering? Starvation? Yesterday? Bigotry? Hatred, slander, violence, racism, murder. These should evoke emotion. Our anger should be kindled. Stoicism not allowed. There are reasons to be wholly discontent. And I recognize that both homophones work. Wholly discontent. And if we have... None of that. Either we've forgotten the gospel or we've not yet experienced it. The gospel is freedom and deliverance for the one who is trapped, oppressed, addicted, enslaved. The gospel is peace for the one who is full of anxiety and fear. The gospel is healing and hope for the one who is suffering and despairing. The gospel is justice for the one who is abused, slandered, maligned, and robbed. The gospel is mercy for the one who has abused, slandered, and maligned if they repent. The gospel is life and joy and purpose for the one who is lifeless and defeated, for the one who's going through the motions or is in a form of malaise wandering in the desert. And all of these are powerful motivations for holy discontent, but they are just parts of the whole of the gospel. We need to take notice what agitated Paul. Where his heart was provoked toward idolatry, 
And that word provoked is the very word that's used throughout the Old Testament, at least in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament. It's used over and over for God's anger toward the idolatry of his people. Deuteronomy 9 would be one place significantly. Isaiah 65. Uh, Psalm 106, Hosea 8 would be others. But it's often, it's often not what provokes us, is it? Idolatry. One, we could say, well, that was very different. We don't have idolatry in our culture, certainly not like they did. It's been said of Athens that it was easier to find an idol than a man. That's how pervasive idolatry was. Actual trinkets or statues or good luck charms or deities being represented by stone or metal or glass carvings, actual idolatry. But Paul saw right past the physical to the idolatry of the heart of men. And that's what agitates him. He sees that God's glory is being ignored and dismissed in this city. God is nowhere to be found amongst all the gods. And that's what agitates him above all else. It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of top of the list. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. God is righteous and he is holy and he is worthy. And that's what provokes Paul when he looks into a culture. That's what burns his agitation. Amidst, I'm sure, any other number of of sin and evil in a city, what he's provoked on is that God's glory is not being proclaimed. And then he also is compassionately pursuing lost people. He's brokenhearted for those that are completely lost and don't know it, right? Sophisticated and yet destined to suffer both in this life and the one to come. Paul had a righteous indignation that the name of God was being reduced and a brokenhearted compassion for people who worshiped false gods. Just like Jesus, just like our hearts should be. You know, Tim Keller said, some people are great at the ministry of truth, but terrible at the ministry of tears. And we need both as we engage our world. As I said earlier, as we look into evil and pain and suffering and difficulty, we ask hard questions, but we rightly are agitated and provoked. Our anger is kindled. At the same time, there should be a brokenheartedness, a a grieving and a pain and a suffering. We see it in Paul. We see it in Jesus. We don't have a letter from Paul to back to Athens. We wish we did. Maybe, maybe he did write one. We don't have it captured for us in our, in our Bibles. We have so many of his letters back to these cities. We wanted one back to the Bereans too, didn't we? But the one he wrote back to the Romans, or to the Romans, I guess, before he visited there, he, wrote, he would have, I think, applied well to this city. Here's the, some of his opening statements to uh, the church in Rome. Uh, I bet he wrote something similar to the church in Athens as it grew. Romans 1, 19 and following For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise and learned 
they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, these deeper roots of idolatry, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Exactly what was happening in Athens and really what is happening in our culture today. The center of the gospel is this. God is holy and he is loving. He's creator and he's sustainer of life now and forevermore. He is great and he is good. He is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed and the world has wholly rejected him. You know, he is worthy of worship even if nothing in our own reality or eternity changed. He is worthy of worship. And yet he changes both. He's the giver of life and life to the full, as Paul said in that sermon. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. If we have breath today, it is from him. And we may not have it tomorrow. And it's from him. This holy, awesome, powerful, eternal, unchanging creator of the universe is also father. He is knowable. He is giver. He loves his children. He is present with us because he has a purpose for us. Here and now and forevermore. And so God's glory is our greatest joy. He deserves it all, and yet what we receive from him is indescribable, uncomparable. Fulfillment that we're all looking for, meaning, purpose, and with it, pleasure, enjoyment, peace in him. This is the center of the gospel. If we're going to preach like Paul, we need to see like Paul, which means we need to be provoked like Paul, to feel what he felt, to be stirred, agitated in spirit. Because what he saw was a junkyard of idols, but right past the external to the heart. And that's where we must be agitated with our own hearts, right? John Calvin famously said, the human heart or human nature is a perpetual idol-making factory. And I'd say, thanks Eugene, uh, it has its own junkyard. The ones we made for our fulfillment and our worship to find worth in and pursuit that didn't give any of that, worthless. We cast them aside. You have that picture in mind? Your heart's always churning and always producing something more, something newer, something better. And usually it's some kind of combination, isn't it? It's not one thing. And for most of us, we don't have an object or a shrine in our home that we pay homage to and that we worship and we spend hours in front of and we give our attention to and devotion and makes us feel something and be moved by something. No, we don't have that today. But we do have 
other idols, positions we pursue, recognition, popularity, power, control, comforts, luxuries, pleasures, they're all become functional saviors, things that we believe that we need to be fulfilled. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, our default of our heart is still an idol-making factory. We still must deal and cast those down. And for most of us, we know it's, it's Jesus. Jesus alone saves, but in reality, we've set up other shrines nearby our heart that say Jesus and these, uh, just a couple other little things. Jesus alone saves, but I need these other things to truly make it, to find joy and fulfillment or purpose in this life. Sure, they're, they're just lesser, just a little, some kind of combination, right? As if it's the right recipe and we're always tweaking and twisting a little more of that. That didn't work like I thought it was going to. Um, and I think the crisis in our culture today, especially in, the, in areas like we live, the affluence that we have, we have everything we ever needed on earth. Many of us get there way too soon. Dreams that most of the world and certainly throughout history could never imagine the kind of comforts and securities and affluences we enjoy, the purposes and fulfillment in, in career and ability to have our voice heard or out there. And I know there's a spectrum for all of us, but re- reality in the spectrum of history in our world, it's incredible. Things we could only, wouldn't even dream of at other times or seasons. And we achieve them, we achieve them so young that we say, well, that didn't work. That wasn't fulfillment like I thought. So, one of two things. Hopefully we say, I was wrong. Most of us don't. We say, I must have more. I guess I was just a little bit wrong. I must have more, more of the same, or that wasn't the right recipe. Cast that aside and find the new. Only always striving for the new and the better. Truly Athenian of heart. C.S. Lewis famously said, we are far too easily pleased. Content with mud pies, he said, it would, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah two thirteen. This is God's word through Jeremiah. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves, and they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think it's the most succinct and powerful statement on idolatry in Scripture. Probably should say one of. But I think it just captures what I think Lewis was trying to capture, what I think Paul would have preached and captured. Maybe he did. He knew Jeremiah well. The two evils of that, the evil of the heart of idolatry, the first evil is rejecting the source of life. Put here, the source of living water. Jesus would say something about that too, wouldn't he? Come to me, I am the source of living water. 
Come back to me. Rejecting the source of living water, making your own idol, your own source of fulfillment, digging out your own cistern that can hold no water. It's filled with sand and silt. And we've convinced ourselves that that's life-giving. The work of our own hands. See that exchange that has taken place. The default of our heart. That's probably a good place to end. Maybe not. But if we are not rightly agitated in heart first, our own heart, our own idol-making factory heart, recognizing what we have exchanged, that, that exchange of the created, the creature, as Paul said, instead of the creator, life that's found in him, relationship that's in him, we've turned to relationships in the world, enjoyment that's found in him and him alone, and his provision and sustaining grace. We've, we've looked into things of this world to satisfy, which can only satisfy for a moment, and then they leave us empty yet again, and we know it, and yet we keep giving ourselves to it. We worship the gifts instead of the giver. That exchange that has taken place in our heart. And yet there's an exchange that's far greater. Martin Luther called the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for us because he knew that we could never change our own heart. That we needed to be born again and made anew. And so as we come today to the table, as we respond with worship, and maybe we're just as conflicted as we were when we came in, but maybe it's a more righteous confliction, a righteous agitation of our own heart first, before we ever start to see rightly into our world, Lord, help us. Lord, humble us. Lord, break us. The capacity of my own heart to create idolatry and to worship is just as evil and ugly in your sight as the hurt and the pain and the brokenness that others inflict in our world. Lord, forgive me yet again. And we are reminded again of his amazing grace. It has been done. It is finished. Thank you, Jesus. That we can respond rightly with confliction and yet humbly we come to receive from him, to do this in remembrance. Don't forget what has been done. To do this in remembrance and then, then and only then can we start to see as he sees in our world, to feel as he feels, as Paul modeled, that we would might, might speak and proclaim the hope of the gospel. Let's pray this. I'll invite the team to come as you are ready. I wrote this prayer. Lord Jesus, provoke our spirit within us. Make us wholly discontent with the idols of our own heart. We want to cast them down, but seem unable. So break them for us, Lord. That you alone may dwell within, that we might not only have your heart, but also your eyes, to see the fields white for harvest, and open our mouths to proclaim your glory and goodness above all earthly things. Amen.